0: A Podcast One production. There was a time. And it wasn't all that long ago when you waited for your favorite newspaper to hit the newsstand. Now, for me, when I was younger, that newspaper was the Boston Phoenix. That was the real alternative to the broadsheet and kind of boring Boston Globe and the tabloid Boston Herald. The Phoenix covered everything I was interested in. It reviewed the new albums, the new bands, the new films, the new books, all of the cool new stuff that I was into. And it was, in its own way, a local copy of the granddaddy of all of the alternative newspapers, The Village Voice. Now, The Village Voice was co-founded by novelist Norman Mailer back in 1955, and The Voice had defined both the role and the expectations for the alternative newspapers to these bigger and more commercially driven ones. All of that meant that as the beat movement blossomed in New York and around the world in the 1950s and then when the hippies came along afterward in the 1960s, those cultures had somewhere that they could learn about themselves. They had a place where they could define themselves in print and define themselves they did. The entire concept of counterculture is so intrinsically tied up with alternative newspapers like the Phoenix and the Village Voice and all of the peers that they had that it's hard to imagine how a counterculture could exist without that. But now, all of that, well, it's all gone. On the last day of August in 2018, the publishers of the Village Voice finally threw in the towel and shuddered that granddaddy of all the alternative newspapers. The Phoenix... The phoenix died five years ago, and those two, they lasted a lot longer than most, well into an age of internet news and Facebook groups. So what remains? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history, as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversation with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. But does that future contain news publications? What's happened to the news and where are the alternatives? This episode is the second of two cutting to the core of this sudden and unexpected transformation. In the last episode, we spoke to Rob Tursick about the business aspects of vaporization when software eats everything. In this episode, we'll hear from perhaps the most widely respected thinker on the future of journalism, Jay Rosen. Jay joins us via remote connection from his office in Berlin, where he spent the last few months helping Germany's news organizations and journalists adapt to a shifting landscape of news, truth and responsibility. Jay, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you very much, Mark. So we've spent a lot of time in series two really talking about how the truth is changing. And lately, we've also been talking about how news organizations specifically over the last 10 to 15 years have been somewhat vaporized by the internet. That's the organizations themselves, the actual news businesses. But what's happening to the journalists who make up those organizations? Well, you mean the ones who still have a job? Well, I guess we should start there. How big of a transition has there been from, say, 20 years ago to today? How much is the field smaller? How much smaller is it now?
1: Uh, I can't remember the exact figures, but um, it's down about 25, 30 percent of total number of the Journalists employed, and some of them are finding life in other professions. It's actually quite easy to get a job in other areas if you're a journalist, because journalists have skills that are that are quite useful. The traditional route, of course, is PR. That's where journalists have always gone to make more money and to have a more stable life. But there's many other things. So some of them are out of the profession, um, and others are. Working for non-traditional um, news organizations, either digital startups um, or other kinds of companies that want some sort of editorial product or sometimes in some cases, uh, nonprofits that are doing journalist uh, style work like Human Rights Watch, for example. Um, and then there's, of course, still a, a large number employed by traditional news organizations that are uh, having to shift their business model to survive in the digital Climate.
0: So w- what does that mean? What does journalism look like today inside these new go- news organizations that are being vaporized, that are more connected, all of these different things that we're aware of? How does that change the journalist role?
1: Well, there's many different kinds of people in these news organizations now. They have uh, people who are expert in audio. They have video makers. They have fact checkers. They have programmers, uh, which is just something that that wasn't even a part of newsrooms before the internet. Um, So one thing is there's many different types of disciplines in a newsroom now, whereas before there was writers and editors and photographers, and that was about it. Uh, And they also are, uh, journalists are more two-way than they used to be for obvious reasons, because the internet is uh, is two-way. There's some increase in personal brand uh, for journalists who have uh, uh, a public uh, profile and there's been some shift uh, towards the individual journalist as a, as a brand. Um, and in the last few years, there's been a major emphasis on gaining subscribers um, because digital advertising is a bust for most news companies. Google and Facebook are taking between 80 and 90% of the new digital dollars. Uh, and so, um, there's 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 emerging. A lot of journalists don't realize this yet, but there's emerging a more direct and intimate relationship with readers, users, uh, because they are more important to the future of news than they have been in the past. So, so that's happening. Uh, and of course, um, because of the political climate uh, and the ease of reaching them, journalists are under attack in more ways than they've ever been uh, in, in the United States in an unprecedented way from the very top of the
0: society. So this is an interesting point because we, I guess we have seen now that uh, journalism has always been, if you're a good investigative journalist, right, the rule of thumb is that you're not a good one unless the powers that be are angry with you, unless you're really making someone angry. But we're now seeing, I guess, it turn to where a good journalist can make not just the people in power angry, but now can make hundreds of thousands or millions of people angry and they have recourse. How has that affected both the way the crowd reacts to news, but then the way the journalist has to work with themselves in that world?
1: One of the things the Internet does, as you know, is um, the falling cost for like minded people to locate each other, realize how many of them there are, create their own information services. Um, And that is often a very good thing. Uh, If you have people suffering from a rare disease, they can find each other over the Internet, start a discussion group or a Facebook group and and help each other out. Um, In the case of um, journalism, what happens is that it's a lot easier for people who are angry uh, or dissatisfied with the press or think it's biased in one direction or biased against them to locate each other, find champions of their cause and and begin Criticizing and in some cases attacking the press. And so uh, you have, uh, well, you have another development, which is that in the United States, uh, running against the media has always been a popular strategy for uh, political candidates. But now you have the incorporation of a kind of a a hate movement against journalists into the political style of the current president and the party that is reshaping itself around him. And that development of uh, of a hate movement against the press led by the president of the United States is a startling, unprecedented and freaky development that nobody knows how to cope with. I've been spending a lot of time writing about it and thinking about it, but there are no easy answers to that. Um, And the fact that uh, people can sort of organize to um, attack and reject journalism they don't like is a new and important fact. And I don't think that the developments we're seeing in the U.S. are going to be limited to the U.S.,
0: no, I mean, I think we can already see in countries like Turkey and other examples where we're starting to see, I guess, uh, I think Hungary is probably another example where the media is being used in this way. It's not quite what we would think of in common terms as propaganda, but perhaps around being able to coalesce uh, a group, a body of, of, of opinion, which is, I think political and emotional I, I agree with you i don't we don't have a lot of words here but i guess what we see is that journalists are now operating inside of that new environment without anyone really understanding as you're pointing out what the rules are
1: here's another description of it um as i said in, in the united states now there's a campaign to discredit the news media and a kind of a hate movement against journalists being led from the top by the president um At the bottom of the pyramid is an army of online trolls and activists who um, shout down news stories they don't like uh, and attack the journalists who report them. And then in the middle uh, are mediating institutions like talk radio, uh, The Daily Caller, Matt Drudge, Breitbart, and of course, Fox News. And that structure um, is very effective Uh, And the result is that for American journalists, when they go into work in the morning, 20 to 30 percent of their potential public is gone before they log on. Um, And that is a extremely difficult problem to try to address because the kind of mistrust that – is emerging in the U.S. around the news media is something you can't tackle by um, improving your news coverage, for example. It's a deep alienation, and journalists are being used as the elites who are the objects of hatred within a populist Um, movement. Populist movements always target elites as the proper focus for anger, and journalists are standing in for all the other elites. Uh, And that makes for an extremely um, difficult environment.
0: So is this In some sense, just the latest version of shooting the messenger or the journalists, simply the messengers bearing the message that these groups don't want and therefore they do shoot the messenger.
1: Well, yes, except that there there, it's a step or two beyond that. Um, Let's remember that Donald Trump rode to political fame and began his career as a politician behind the birth or lie, um, which I call verification in reverse. So verification is when you take something that might be true and you nail it down with facts, evidence, interviews, data. Verification in reverse is when you take something that's been nailed down and you introduce doubt about it. And the doubt creates controversy and motion and anger uh, and then you can use that energy to fuel a political campaign. Um, and so that's a little different than just propaganda or shooting the messenger. That's building political traction off the very public rejection of facts.
0: And we see this, again, similarly in, the, in what we think of as the climate debate, although the climate debate is really restricted to a few countries that have had this twist in the dialogue. Most countries consider that climate ch- change is a settled issue. And yet there are countries such as Australia and America being the two probably on the top of the list where it's become that element of, I guess, really the, the idea of verification in reverse and been using that to to drive the debate beyond
1: yeah it's rejection of established fact to generate political momentum that you can use to gain other goals that you have in mind uh and that i wouldn't call that shooting the messenger that's a that's a different thing that's almost like unbuilding the Enlightenment.
0: It's interesting that you bring this up because one of the things that I saw from my own research around how Facebook profiling was building a reality tunnel that people were very happily inhabiting because it was confirming all of the things that they wanted to believe to be true. That it was effectively undoing the Enlightenment in that, that this idea that there's a factual basis for the things that we accept as true, which is... A relatively modern idea, it's only a few hundred years old, is now in a sense being – it's it's verification in reverse. And so we're now starting – if we're starting to undermine that, then what is the sort of – role of reality is there a consensus-based reality we think of news organizations as in a sense the uh, the, both the arbiters and the describers of consensus-based reality you read the news to find out what's going on in the world but if that's no longer the case then where do we find moorings or do we even have them
1: well let's go back to 2004 you when were you in the united states then
0: Uh, No, in fact, I just moved to Australia.
1: All right, well, you'll remember the presidential campaign between John Kerry and uh, George Bush. And something very important on this question happened in in 2004. There was a group of right-wing activists who um, were eventually called the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. And they believed or claimed to believe that John Kerry, who had been a war hero and had been awarded the highest medal that you can earn in the United States military, which was part of his political biography, uh, they believed that not only did John Kerry not deserve his medals because he didn't do the things that he got them for, but he actually behaved dishonorably in Vietnam uh, when he was in the military and that he's a big fake and everything about his political biography is phony. um, And they were determined... To make this point during the elections in order to discredit him and, of course, help the campaign of George W. Bush. Now, that was the kind of charge that in previous eras, journalists would look at that. They would ask themselves, is there enough proof? Is there enough verification? And if they decided that there wasn't, they would just not report on it. And if they didn't report on it, it basically did not exist as an as an item in the campaign and in that campaign what happened was journalists took a look at the evidence they looked at the verification they decided that this was not a supportable charge and there was nothing they could do it was launched by others into the campaign uh around the press and that was the moment i think where we could say that we it became very clear that there is no more gatekeepers for the public sphere you can't keep a charge like that out of the political debate simply because it is untrue and has no foundation and so in some ways i think we're moving towards a world in which truth is approached more from the demand side i mean i know that sounds weird but what I, what i mean is there was a huge demand among uh, the far right in 2004 for John Kerry to be um, a traitor and a creep, and that demand for that fact, even though the fact wasn't true, was was so large and so readily apparent that uh, a, a content source sprung up to serve it, and that's what I see happening again and again in our current climate: is that The demand for something to be true is what counts, not whether it is.
0: And is that because the demand then creates, because we have a connected culture, it creates the readership, the viewership that then can be monetized, is it always connected to a financial model there? In other words, is this really a sophisticated form almost of a confidence game where you're feeding the marks what they want to believe? or, Or is it more ideological? Or are they simply so married that it's very difficult to pull them apart?
1: It's partly that they're is big money in doing it. It's commercial incentives for doing so. But it's also partly because technology is so exquisitely good at registering this demand at finding it and making it clear where it lies. That's what Facebook is, right? It, in many ways, it's a, it's a system for aggregating and signaling where the demand is. Um, And so we have better tools for uh, recognizing that. And, of course, the intersection between these methods and commercial um, imperatives is a big part of it. And that's worked in the history of publishing. That's worked in many different ways. But one of the ways the press became powerful in the first place is that there was a a dovetailing or a a coincidence between the profit motive – and publishing things that the authorities didn't want. So you could make money by defying the king. And uh, that's one way that in the 18th century, a free press emerged.
0: We're talking to Jay Rosen on the next billion seconds. We'll be right back. And we're back talking to Jay Rosen about journalism in the next billion seconds. All right, so Jay, you teach journalists today. You teach at the journalism school at NYU. So you are teaching the generations of journalists who will be writing over the next billion seconds, who have careers that will go into the 2050s. What are you teaching them about how to work in this world?
1: Well, I think the main thing is that um, they have to be competent at the intersection of editorial work, technology and business they have to be comfortable uh, working in that uh, environment and um, they have to know enough about each uh, leg of that stool to uh, make change Uh, and they shouldn't uh, fear technology but they also shouldn't uh, worship it they should uh, know how to either um, do things themselves or find people who can help them do it. They have to become more collaborative. Uh, They have to um, learn how to experiment and iterate in an agile fashion. Um, And combining those sort of new disciplines with very old fashioned commitment to um, truth and an informed public, and uh, challenging the powers that be and equipping people to make uh, decisions that affect their lives, um, that's what's going to uh, provide a satisfying uh, career. So uh, I try to teach my students that they they need to be at the table when big decisions are made for newsrooms about directions to go in. And in order to do that, they, they need to be comfortable at the intersection of news
0: tech and business. Okay, so if we're talking about that intersection between news and tech and business, this is, I mean, what you're also describing is the thing that's changed the most. If you take a look at, if we did a snapshot of news in 1990 and a snapshot of news now in 2018, you wouldn't describe the change as being just a change in editorial or just a change in tech or just a change in business, that it's in fact all three of them have changed together. They've changed in lockstep. So each one of them is in some sense not separable from the others. Is that going to become even more the case as we move into the future?
1: Absolutely. And that is the biggest change in journalism. It used to be a very stable business in which – The technology advanced a little bit, but it didn't undergo any um, basic changes for 50, 100 years. Um, The newspaper as a business didn't really change much at all for um, several generations. And it was also a highly profitable business. I remember when I first got involved in, in engaging the newspaper journalists. Jim Batten, the CEO of Knight Ritter, which at the time was the second-largest newspaper company in the United States, um, said to me personally, uh, when I was an unknown assistant professor, um, he said, "Half, uh, he said, most of the publishers in my company got into this business because you could succeed even if you were brain dead." And he's just talking about his own people. And what he meant was that the business was such a simple business that if you just came into the office and you did the same thing you did last year, you made 25% profit. So in that environment, what happens is the, the editorial people can pretend they have nothing to do with the business. That's another floor. They don't have to worry about the tech. That's somebody else's department. They just do their stories. They can um, do that in isolation from the rest of the company and it all comes together and it works. And now that's completely gone. Uh, And the way that um, the company makes money, the way that it um, connects to itself and to its public uh, are completely different. The other thing that's different in addition to the tech, the business model and the, the news is the relationship with the users.
0: So the, you bring up a very good point here because, in fact, rather than being the voice, the the news organization is a voice among many. And it's a voice among its users. It's a voice among other news organizations in a way that it hasn't been before. And do we find news organizations now changing either their voice or their tone or the way that they're talking to their audiences because of that, or are they trying to keep the same tone as they move forward?
1: Well, I'll tell you what I'm arguing for, and it's beginning to happen, but it's going to be a longer term change. Um, There is underway a shift in the in the nature of trust between journalists and the users of the product. And roughly it's a shift from authority to transparency. So, an authority-based trust system is is grounded in reputation. We're CBS News. We've been around since the dawn of the broadcast world. Uh, we are famous for Walter Cronkite. We're Washington Post. We uh, we are the people from Watergate. You remember us. We're the New York Times. We're a global brand. We're professionals, and and uh, our authority derives from this sort of citadel or um, church. Of professionalism, um, so that's that's an authority-based trust system that increasingly is uh, falling apart. One of the reasons for that is that the central argument for trusting journalism in the United States is built on neutral professionalism and objectivity. But increasingly, if you say to people you should trust me, I don't have a point of view, I don't have a stake, I don't have a philosophy, I don't have any politics you should believe this because it's just the facts. So believe me, increasingly that kind of claim is mistrusted on principle. Um, people don't believe in it anymore, people don't buy it. So the alternative system is transparency. Transparency is based around a, a different fundamental claim, which is don't believe me, check for yourself. Don't believe me, here's the data. Don't believe me, here are the interviews don't believe me, here's all the people we talk to. Don't believe us, here's the way that you can run these calculations yourself. And transparency means um, here's where we're coming from as against we are objective. It means sharing the data as opposed to owning it and just giving people the story. And slowly but surely, a transparency-based trust system is coming to journalism because the older one, based on reputation and authority, is falling apart.
0: So if we move to this transparency-based journalism, does that then mean not only that the relationship to the audience has changed, but the thing that you're asking the audience to do, which is don't take this on faith, actually go out and check our facts, check our figures, that that's actually asking the audience to do more work? Is that the way that the audience then comes to I guess, believe in or put their faith in the news organization because they're in a partnership, a work partnership with it, rather than just this receptive partnership?
1: That is one of the implications, yes. Um, And that is one reason that I am uh, the director of something called the Membership Puzzle Project at NYU, which is a grant-funded research project. We are studying membership models in news as both a promising business model and as, as a new sort of kind of news organization in which people participate beyond just um, supplying money in the news gathering itself and in, in, participate in a way in trust production. Um, and so this has been occupying a lot of my time over the last uh, year or so, because I believe that membership models have a lot of potential to not only provide um, the uh, source of funding for journalism,
0: but a stronger bond with the public. Because, in fact, what it means is that the The boundary, and again, this comes back to this idea of authority, the boundary between where the news organization is and where the readership is becomes now much more malleable. And people are sort of living on both sides of that. So they probably feel themselves as belonging to that organization. Yes.
1: Um, I began working on this when I learned about the incredible success of the Dutch startup The Correspondent, uh, which emerged from the Netherlands starting in 2013. As the world's most successful member funded news site. So they have about 60,000 members that um, pay about 70 uh, euros a year to support this news site because they believe in the kind of journalism it does. And one of the uh, central mo- uh, tenets of the correspondent is that members uh, have knowledge that's valuable for the journalism and part of the responsibility, 30 to 40 percent of the time that correspondents spend on their work has to be spent in interaction with members to try and get their knowledge and expertise flowing in to make better journalism. And the idea is that it not only improves the uh, product, but it improves loyalty and attachment to the organization. Uh, So they are seeing their users as knowledge sources and trying to teach their journalists to work in collaboration with knowledgeable readers, because as the correspondent likes to say, everyone is an expert in something. And um, that's a shift in culture. And I'm trying to work with them to bring that model to the United States. They want to expand from the Netherlands to the United States, and I am their uh, first ambassador to the American market.
0: This ties in because, I, you know, say 10 years ago, we were having this idea of the citizen journalist, which... In a sense, social media almost sort of overwhelmed it rather than doing something that was citizen journalist. People will post to Facebook or they'll post to Twitter. Is this the more evolved model of uh, citizen journalism where it leaves sort of inside, alongside, but in partnership with someone who identifies as a professional journalist, working with people who have an interest and have domain knowledge, but wouldn't identify as a professional journalist?
1: Well, citizen journalism... Got mixed up with other things. Um, My definition of that, which I believe is the correct definition, was that um, citizen journalism is when the people formally known as the audience use the tools in their possession to inform one another. So to me, citizen journalism was when um, you go to the school meeting, you know there are other parents that are interested in it, Um, they can't be there, you are there and you post to your blog or your Facebook page a report of what happened. That's citizen journalism. It's people informing each other because they know it's important. At the same time, there was the growth of a different thing, which I would call more like pro-am journalism, in which journalists discover, professional journalists discover that working with readers who know things or may have seen things or might be on the scene or might have expertise can actually benefit the product and result in a better story. That kind of collaboration is what the correspondent is about. Um, And that's the kind of collaboration that, for example, David Ferencola of the Washington Post in 2016 used to win the Pulitzer Prize in his um, investigation of Donald Trump's terrible giving, which readers helped him do in some really interesting ways. So I do think that there's a lot of potential in beat reporters plus knowledgeable readers who care about that beat. And i for years, tried to run experimental projects that are, that show the potential of that kind of uh, journalism. And I believe that in the future, that's the way a lot of beat reporting will be done. It will be reporter plus knowledgeable network.
0: Will there be a pushback against what's journalism, right? Basically grabbing something and then putting it up because it's popular. Or will we see more and more of that kind of Daily Mail side of journalism?
1: I think there's already pushback against that. That was a fairly desperate strategy in which you just try to amass as many visits to your site as possible and then hope to profit from essentially programmatic advertising based on numbers of. Viewers, and the business model for that is disappearing. That's why the uh, tactics are getting more desperate, um, and it's—I think—it's just a losing game because um, Facebook and Google are so much more effective at digital advertising, and so that wasn't really a sign of um, success in publishing so much as it was. Uh, a a desperate move where um, the next business model for new was unclear and people just went for traffic Uh, It's already falling apart.
0: So the the show is called The Next Billion Seconds. A billion seconds from now is 2050. If we want to project forward, what does a news organization look like? And, uh, you know, there's probably going to be several flavors. But what would you say a successful, healthy news organization looks like in a billion seconds? Mm, That's
1: really hard. Um, I don't think that there will be one business model to replace the one that the internet broke. I think there will be many uh, and that they'll have to continually be reinvented as the um, technology and business climate changes. Uh, I think there will be many ways to subsidize public service journalism, which has always been subsidized by something. So instead of one or two ways, which were essentially in the previous era, advertising or BBC model, that's pretty much it. I think there will be um, a plurality of such models. Um, Obviously, uh, artificial intelligence and machines that can do rote work will be a far more important factor in news. And uh, journalists themselves will increasingly be asked to handle only the highest value Actions uh, in journalism, things that are the hardest to do, and machines will be uh, able to do a lot of other things. So I was I would anticipate that, um, and I think that the relationship between readers, users, the people who benefit from uh, journalism, and journalists will continue to evolve. Um, what's unknown is whether we will have journalism for the public because because that is something that has had a certain history. I mean, there's you can have professional journalists who are figuring out what's going on and telling people about it without that news ever reaching the public. And so one of my fears is that we'll have really good journalism and it'll be available only to the elite, and they will be informed and everyone else will uh, will get crap. So that those are some of the things that I see happening. But I, I have to confess, I had no idea what the news industry will look like in 2015. It's hard enough for me to figure out what's going on in 2018.
0: If we have a journalism industry in a billion seconds, what are the chances that it will be Bigger than it is today, not in terms of dollars, but I guess in terms of the number of people who are connected to it, either through being professional journalists or by being involved in an organization like The Correspondent. Versus the number of people today who basically just sort of dial up, you know, whether it's The Guardian or The New York Times or The Washington Post or Fairfax and have that more passive relationship. Will we see – will people, do you think, be more connected to their news or will they be less connected to their news?
1: I think it totally depends on another question, which is whether we actually have political democracy in, in 2050. I'm not at all sure that we will. Um Every liberal democracy around the world is under a lot of stress right now, and we are seeing the rise of of something very disturbing, which is illiberal democracy, where people vote in an Erdogan or um, essentially an authoritarian ruler, and in situations like that, they don't necessarily want to know what's going on. They, they want truth from the demand side, um, and so... I, I, I really think that the prospects for a, a healthy news industry that reaches across a society to include powerful people and people without power in the same factual world depends hugely on whether political democracy remains alive. And right now, I don't think that's
0: a sure thing at all. Jay Rosen, thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. You are so welcome, Mike. Over the arc of Series 2, we've taken a look at our changing relationship to truth. How we know what's true, how we learn what's true, and how technology both assists and confounds us in the search for truth. The future for journalism lies in trust and relationships. These are very human qualities. They're not something we can automate. They're something we build through experience. And the further we go into the next billion seconds, the more we see we need that trust and the more we need those human relationships. We'll be linking to Jay's recent writings on journalism and trust, in particular about the Dutch news organization De Correspondent, because that's one possible future for journalism if we want to make it real. Has our conversation gotten you thinking about how we make the news? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com or leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future and we'll do our best to bring it to you In a future episode. Now on our next episode, and the conclusion of Series 2, we'll be joined by Dana Boyd, perhaps the most insightful and provocative thinker about connected culture. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcast1.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.